Support for this podcast and the following message come from the University of Alabama, offering over 70 premier bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree programs in a flexible online format through Bama by Distance. Learn more or apply today at bamabydistance.ua.edu. In Maria Semple's novel, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Bernadette Fox is a wife and mother and architect who mysteriously vanishes from her ordinary life in the middle of a personal crisis. Her daughter is left to piece together what happened. The new film adaptation is directed by Richard Linklater and stars Kate Blanchett as Bernadette. Also in the cast are Billy Crudup, Kristen Wiig, and Lawrence Fishburne. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. Here with me and Glenn in the studio is writer Katie Presley. Hi, Katie. Howdy. And joining us also is our friend Lindsay McKenna from NPR Music. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, everyone. It's so good to see you again. So Where'd You Go, Bernadette is a 2012 novel. I read it. I know Katie read it. I know Lindsay read it. I know Glenn read the Wikipedia page. That's what it did. And if you, it's sort of a comic novel. And if you're not familiar with it, one of the things that I think makes it challenging to adapt is that it's largely an epistolary novel in the sense that it's made up of emails, documents, transcripts that are recorded by various people. It's a kind of an assemblage of evidence after Bernadette has disappeared. And I should also say the trailer for the movie gives away roughly where Bernadette actually is when she disappears, as does the first shot of the movie. Uh So if you really don't want to know where she went, (laughs) you should maybe listen to this after you see the movie. I don't necessarily think that that being a secret is is super important because it's only a secret in the movie for a very short period of time, much Mm -hmm. shorter than in the book. I want to start with you, Glenn. As somebody who didn't read the book and came to this story fresh, I know you're a Kate Blanchett person. How did you feel about the film? When she was on screen in a blunt cut bob and Anuantor sunglasses and a fishing vest for reasons, uh, I was in, totally in. Uh, When she wasn't, uh, I was less uh, taken by it. It felt to me, coming in fresh, uh, a fun, if slight little film that had some weird disconnection, weird shagginess, things that were just not followed through on. And when I did go back after the, after seeing it and read the Wikipedia entry, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. This is a huge work of adaptation where the book is a mystery and this is a very straightforward linear story that has a lot of weird bits at it. Right. Uh, so, for example, one of the things the film doesn't really decide until the very end is whether or not Kate Blanchett's character, Bernadette, is mentally ill or if she's just artistically frustrated. And if you're reading a mystery and those are kind of possibilities that are raised, that's fascinating. That's like, that's the drive that I need to find out. I need to find out. Here, simply by asserting both those possibilities, it just felt a little wobbly. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed it. I kind of want to go back and read the novel now. Yeah, you should, by the way. It is a, a really wonderful, it is a wonderful book. Lindsay, as somebody who did read the novel, how did you respond to the film? Right. So when I first saw the trailer for the film, I thought, wow, this checks off every box because one, it's adapted from a book that I loved and is pretty much universally beloved, mm-hmm. I think. Richard Linklater, just the thought of boyhood is enough to sort of make me emotional. And the before trilogy, I'm a huge fan. Kate Blanchett, like what else is there to say? What a perfect person. Mm-hmm. Um, mother-daughter relationships, that's kind of like my bread and butter. So everything about this checks a box for me, but then all of those parts don't necessarily add up to a really satisfying whole for me. One of the things that I thought was most difficult about it, again, was sort of that how does this particular document translate. And I don't think that it 
effectively landed in the way that I wanted it to, especially because the point of view of the book is so different because it's really coming from B's perspective. Mm-hmm. The daughter. The daughter, exactly. And what I got here is that you see sort of the views change. Um, you see the point of view change. And one thing that I did think was particularly satisfying was the way that B uncovers sort of her mother's history through she watches this little documentary that mm-hmm. is in the book. It's in an article. But I liked the way that that translated to screen. They did a really good job making that I little that expository yeah. documentary. Yeah. That mm-hmm. really seemed very genuine. Right. So that that was really satisfying. All of these things should add up to something that I love. And I just felt like it wasn't totally on point for me. Yeah. How about you, Katie? I crash read the book right before watching the movie and loved it. Like texted everybody I knew and was like, I am ready to talk about this 2012 novel. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Twitter. (laughs) Dear dear MySpace. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So don't worry. I bought three copies and put them in the mail to people that have probably already read it. But like Lindsay, the trailer did check a lot of boxes and the book certainly I loved it and so I thought absolutely let me at a movie about all of these things and then the movie completely lacked the connective tissue I think that made the book sing and the movie really is a both are a question of is Bernadette a frustrated artist who is becoming as her friend architect played by Lawrence Fishburne, really pitch perfectly, says, Bernadette, people like you have to create. If you stop creating, you become a menace to society, right? So the question is, is she a menace to society because she needs to be creating? Or has she been dragged down by anxieties and depression that has built up over the last 20 years of her life? But those questions don't get very much time in the movie. And and two things that in the book really contribute are, she has four miscarriages before the birth of B. And B is sick. Her heart is malformed. And so her very early infancy is very scary. Also, she has a professional collapse in Mm -hmm. L.A. before Mm -hmm. moving to Seattle with her husband. And both of those things are like blips in the movie. Like, so I thought even the fundamental question of what's going on with Bernadette didn't get enough time you're not proving to me that she would really be struggling as much as we are watching her struggle. So I do think the movie did a couple of really beautiful things. For one, we got to see the architecture. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. Including over the closing credits, there's a little bit of of architecture show off. Which is also in a trailer. It doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah, yeah, that little closing animation. That was a really delightful moment, too. Yeah, absolutely. And he, Linklater, like, took a swing at envisioning the 20-mile house, which was her, like, crowning achievement Mm -hmm. in L.A. That the book just tells you about. And you have to think, like... How do you knit together glasses? It just casually says, she went home on the weekend, and when I came back on Monday, she had knitted together 6,000 pairs of glasses. And I'm thinking, that's not... What? My brain. Mm -hmm. And then it happens in the movie, and it's beautiful. So there definitely... You do get things in the movie that your brain had to come up with reading the book. But altogether, I just felt I had so many questions. I'm, I'm actually glad you didn't read it, Glenn, because I was hoping that somebody could speak to whether it made any sense as a whole, having not read it. There are large subplots from the book, I know, from Wikipedia, <laughs> mm-hmm. that are just completely dropped. Absolutely. Completely dropped, which leads to a feeling of slightness, I think, which yes. leads to this feeling of, like, there's not a lot of weight well, here. Well, the mm. thing that's interesting to me is that the book is essentially an investigation, right? So the book... There's almost no time other than a few kind of interludes from B where she sort of gives you pieces of story in a traditional narrative. 
you get very little traditional narrative. So you have all this time. Every time you're reading an email, for example, between Bernadette's neighbor, Audrey, and Bernadette, you're not only getting the narrative from the email, the plot, you know, what is happening and who said what to who, but you're also getting all the feel of the characterization. And I think one of the things that makes the novel so successful You know, it's not only significant what this person is saying in this communication, but the fact that the communication exists Mm -hmm. is another piece of the puzzle. And so it's constantly operating on these sort of multiple levels of development. And I think when you switch it over into a linear narrative, you necessarily are just showing what happened, but you lose all the you lose everything that you got from hearing people speak in their own voices in the way they do in the book. And there's a lot of stuff in the film that is taken directly from the book in terms of dialogue, things that they find ways to have people say. (laughs) With all that said, I think I liked it significantly more than any of you guys did. And that's because, I think it's for two reasons. I really like the Kate Blanchett performance. Yeah. Despite the fact that she struggles mightily with her American accent, which I did so not, surprising. I did not expect. Oh, I yeah. think she's doing kind of a mid Atlantic thing there, though. It's possible, but yeah. but to me, it reads like a struggle with the accent, which mm. was weird. But that is such a minor blip. I think this performance is really kind of pointy and a rough-edged in an interesting way. She's actually able to be odd in a new way to me from what you normally see from women in American film. And I think that she captures the part of Bernadette that is so loving toward her daughter and her husband, although that relationship is more complicated, so loving toward her daughter and yet also so resentful of her life. And that balance is really tough, and I liked it. The other thing is I think I still, even though I didn't get as rich of a sense of the story as I did from the book, the fact that this story is ultimately about a woman whose creative kind of drive has to be satisfied and fed, I've always really appreciated. And I've always really appreciated the fact that her disappearance and, you know, as we talked about, they kind of give this up very quickly in the in the film. There's a very short time where they don't know where she is. And it turns out she's gone essentially off to Antarctica to sort of follow some instinct she has that she needs to go someplace else and do something else and be by herself. And people need to be by themselves sometimes. And the fact that that story respects that about her is something I've always appreciated. Also worth noting that when she disappears, she doesn't do it in too irresponsible of a way. In both the book and the movie, she finds ways as quickly as possible to be in touch with her family. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, peace, I got to go find myself. You're part of the problem. Right. It's like, I've got this opportunity isn't this amazing? What do you two think? Mm-hmm. Which I, I did appreciate. Yeah. And I think when you when you were talking about the fact that it's it's about that balance between is she mentally ill or is she creatively frustrated? I'm always wary of stories like that because I don't want I don't want it to be like she seems like she's mentally ill, but actually she's just an inspired artistic mm-hmm. genius. But I think here the f- sense that I have is Sometimes you do have to kind of struggle through that thing. And I don't assume that at the end of the book that this is the end of her exploration of whether she needs therapy, for example. Mm -hmm. I think it's just sort of the beginning of that process for her. There's a scene in the trailer that isn't in the film where she's in the pharmacy with the (laughs) chewing chandelier. (laughs) 
And she's looking up at it, gazing up at it longingly as if it represents something. I think just even inserting that into the film would have said something yeah. that the film doesn't, that yeah. this kind of glosses right over. I also think that um, in that moment in the trailer, it kind of gets into something that's really prominent in the book, to me at least as a reader, is the idea of Seattle. Yeah. In my mind, the film is kind of split into two segments. There's the bit in Seattle before she disappears, and then there's Antarctica and like all of these sort of like beautiful cinematic adventures. In the book, I think you get more of a sense of Seattle sort of being this chance for Bernadette to express her frustration that she had fled the L.A. architecture scene, that she takes a lot of her animosity out on the Gaylor Street Nats. The school moms. (laughs) Big little eyes, Seattle. Exactly. (laughs) Even the fact that Elgin, her husband, has sort of like leaned really hard into this Microsoft um, stereotype. To me, in the book, you really get this idea that something has fundamentally changed within her by her experience of being there, especially the social dynamic of her and her husband having gone to the prep schools out east, having moved out west. To me, there's in that moment, that's kind of what I envisioned Mm -hmm. that to be about. And you don't get as much of that, I don't think. Yeah. And about Seattle, I was born and raised just outside Seattle, grew up in the Pacific Northwest. If you, like me, are hoping for a really fabulous Seattle dive here, which the book absolutely gives you, I will tell you there are ubiquitous blackberry brambles, which is spot on. And there is one, count it, one glorious King County Metro bus that drives by in the background at one point. And then there's the, of course, the Dave Chihuly uh, glass piece in the pharmacy, which you very briefly see. Otherwise, it was shot in Pittsburgh. So, um, <laughs> and it's the wrong kind of rain. It's the wrong kind of rain. Seattle doesn't downpour. It mists yeah. forever. Uh-huh. You're going to get some some Seattle goodies, but not many. If, if that's what you're watching this movie for, please, 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 please read the book for the Microsoft connector jokes alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I agree. Uh, there's a moment of quick cutting back and forth between a conversation uh, Bernadette has with the Lawrence Fishman character, her fellow architect, where she's ranting about Seattle and ranting about a lot of things. And... Uh, a conversation that Billy Crudup, uh, her husband, is having with a therapist played by Judy Greer, a very kind of low-key Judy Greer, Uh but any Judy Greer is good Judy Greer. Uh We are seeing those two conversations echo each other and underscore and then reinforce and then really kind of say... diverge and come back together. And come back together again in a really interesting way. That was a really nice moment of script writing and directing. Uh, Because let's talk about Richard Linklater. I mean, he... I haven't seen a lot of his films except his early ones, and I don't think of him as auteur stylist. I think of him as somebody who's really good at capturing people talking. Is that am sure. I about that? It's true, but it's also true that he has done a lot of things that are formally kind of unusual in some way. Not the sort of fancy, less in the fancy camera kind of slacker stuff, slacker stuff yeah. but more in the kind of, oh, that's an interesting way to make a movie. Bernie has sure. kind of inserts of people talking about Texas and stuff like that. Obviously, Boyhood shot the way it was shot. The fact that the, the Before trilogy stretches over so many years and was made in kind of real time. I think that he does play around with how to make films structurally. And so I think he probably did as good of a job as anybody was going to do translating this structure. But one of the things I noticed is that, you know, we talked about the fact that we really like the little faux documentary. But in a film, that has a way of looking like an exposition dump, yep. right? It has a way of looking like a news report in a an action movie. Mm-hmm. A walk and talk expl- in the West Wing. Exactly, where they explain everything that's happening. 
But that's what the book is. The book is like that. The book is like you just get a big news report and you read it about the person and it feels different. And so you're in a really difficult situation because what we're used to in film, what we're used to thinking of as authentic is just watching the narrative in real time and everything else feels like exposition, right? If you're seeing, if you're hearing somebody's discussion with a therapist where they explain all their marriage. It's like, oh, you know, show, don't tell, right? But that's what it is in the book Mm -hmm. because it's an investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I liked this better than I think you guys did, (laughs) but I think we all like the Kate Blanchett performance. Sure. And uh, and I do recommend the book if you haven't read it. Yeah. Tell us what you think about Where'd You Go, Bernadette. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time to talk about what's making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Hulu. With the largest streaming library full of your favorite reality TV shows, Hulu is the home for reality TV's biggest fans. Catch all the drama, all the tears, all the heartbreak, all the competition. Because Hulu has your reality TV. Start your free trial today. Learn more at Hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code HAPPYHOUR. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. Hey, NPR fans. Did you hear a sponsor you want to learn more about? Head over to npr.org slash podcasts and click sponsors and promo codes to learn more. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Lindsay McKenna, what is making you happy this week? All right. So in my day job here at NPR Music, I have to spend a lot of time on Twitter, which is actually the opposite of happy. It can feel a little (laughs) bit toxic. But the past two weeks, there's been a couple of really glorious memes that have just like that have actually made Twitter kind of fun. Last week, there was the 30 to 50 feral hog. Sure. (laughs) And I don't want to rehash last week because I want to focus on this week. The fish tube. Yeah. Yes. Have you guys seen the fish tube? The, the fish, fish tube. tube. I have not. Oh, wow. My. Cheddar posted this video of what they call a salmon cannon, um, which it literally does what it says. It literally shoots salmon between bodies of water. Kind of like if you are at a drive through bank and you put your deposit into oh the tube and it goes. Yes. It is made by, I kid you not, a company called Woosh Industries. <laughs> or Woosh Innovations, apologies. Oh, sure. But great. Woosh um, Innovations. And as with everything on the internet this week, people took the fish tube video, which is not new. It has been around. John Oliver has covered it. But they added the DuckTales theme song. And my personal favorite, of course, is Lady Gaga. You can imagine the song that everyone chose. Uh Uh Shallow, that beautiful moment. Imagine a salmon just (laughs) soaring across a sky as the song crescendos. Um, That, my friends, has made me happy. And I hope it does it for you. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you very much, Lindsay McKenna. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a new podcast in which Andy Richter, the great, the funny, the wonderful Andy Richter, uh, asks his guests three questions. They are, where do you come from? Where are you going? What have you learned? Now, if you hear that and you kind of seize up a little like, ooh, that sounds a little uh, schematic and a little uh, whiteboard meeting, kind of let's blue <laughs> sky thinking, synergy, et cetera, <laughs> you ha- you're forgetting that it's, it's Andy Richter, who is uh, so garrulous, so personable. He doesn't just sit there like he's James Lipton with the, you know, 
uh, questionnaire <laughs> from Bernard Pouveau. Mm-hmm, yes. Apostrophe. It's not that. It, it is, it's just a conversation. And they're just kind of jumping off points. And he's had some great guests. And uh, he will continue to have great guests because he's, you know, he's pretty plugged in. The one that's most recent this week is Joel Kim Booster. Now, I'm a fan of Joel Kim Booster, the sure. comedian. Uh, an actor. Uh, uh, I have heard him give his origin story on many podcasts many times. Here, it is equal parts Joel's origin story as Andy's because they grew up in towns very close together. Mm-hmm. This is what this podcast can be. They discover something in the room that they don't come into it with. There's just this great back and forth. It's it's unforced. It's not too long. And uh, it's just people who clearly like each other getting to know each other. And it's uh, it's great. It's the three questions with Andy Richter. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. Uh, I'm excited to listen to that. Katie Presley, what is making you happy this week? How this is going to land on this audience depends on how one feels about the word magic with a K. Hmm. So hold in your mind. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hold in your mind how you feel about the word magic with a K. I am reading a book called High Magic with a K by Damien Eccles, and it is making me very happy this week. Brief background, Damien Eccles is one of the West Memphis Three. These are three men who, as teenagers, were imprisoned for the murder of three children in West Memphis, Arkansas. Damien was sentenced to death. He, They all served 18 years in prison for Damien. More than half of that was in solitary confinement. They were released in 2011. So Damien has written a couple of books since being out, and this one is specifically about his relationship to Magic with a K and how it saved his life in prison. So Magic with a K is um, a lot about energy. It's about learning about energy and eventually manipulating it. So magicians, the idea is that you can visualize energy and then start to make it work for you. So this book, regardless of whether you are interested in becoming a magician and actually wielding energy like a tool, I am finding this book so beautiful because at the end of the day, it's about breath work. It's about being grounded and invoking good things in the world. It's about the triumph of the dang human spirit, y'all. So it's just it's a thin little book. You can get as into it as you want. To be clear, I'm in deep. Like, bring me your golden spheres. Bring me your white light. That's uh-huh. the level that I'm operating on. But if you just want to develop some practices that help you make a warm, healthy space for yourself in this planet that is not always warm and healthy to you, mm-hmm. I really recommend this book. It's called High Magic with a K by Damien Eccles. Thank you, Katie. Uh, what is making me happy this week is Diagnosis, which just dropped on Netflix. And it's based on, if you know the column in the New York Times by uh, Dr. Lisa Sanders, where she does, she crowdsources a diagnosis or ideas about a diagnosis for someone with kind of a mysterious set of symptoms. It's a combination of a medical column and kind of a mystery column. This is another of the New York Times sort of forays into television. They have uh, co-produced with Netflix this series in which each episode follows a person with a mysterious malady. And she goes to talk to them. They talk to all different doctors. And then she puts it in the column. And they take ideas from what she refers to over and over as the crowd. You know, she's very into this kind of 
the wisdom of the crowd kind of thing. The interesting thing about it is in the early going, you get kind of what you would expect, right? You get, you know, a, a new fresh idea and maybe that's an idea that you wouldn't have thought of about these symptoms. And that's just kind of good mystery stuff. But as you go deeper into the show, there are some very interesting moments about how the healthcare system responds to people who have difficult symptoms, mm-hmm. how families become enmeshed in the idea that someone is ill, the kind of fine line between somebody not trusting the medical profession for good reason and somebody not wanting to hear what doctors have to say and Mm -hmm. sort of the complexity of that. And then ultimately, if you stick with it until the end, there is also an addressing of what kinds of people doctors tend to listen to very well, who feel confident that they're being listened to and who doesn't, and that there are gross inequities in those kinds of things. So it's called Diagnosis. It's on Netflix. And as you hear this, uh, it should be available to you. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can find Katie at Love is Maroon. And you can find Lindsay at Lindsay McKay. That's L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y-M-C-K. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, Jessica underscore Reedy, and our producer emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to you guys for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. If you have a second and you're so inclined, please subscribe to our newsletter. That is at npr.org slash newsletter. We will see you all right back here next week. Hey, everyone. It's Ophira Eisenberg. And here I'm chatting with one of Queer Eye's Fab Five, Anthony Porowski. What's a culinary deal breaker for you? Ketchup on hot dogs makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> Listen to NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions.